The genre of detective fiction has captured the imaginations of millions of readers since it began in 1841 with the book written by Edgar Allan Poe. Since then, many famous detectives have graced the wonders of literature. Of course, there's Agatha Christie's detectives such as Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple and many others that have been seen throughout film and television, but no detective, at least fictional detective that is, is as famous as the one and only Sherlock Holmes. Welcome to season two of Cases of Continuity. My name is Ryan, I am your host, and in this season, we're going to be taking a deep dive into every single piece of Sherlock Holmes literature written by the one and only Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We'll be discussing the history behind each of those works and how Doyle originally wrote them, as well as discussing the plot and the character development of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. It's sure to be a thoroughly entertaining journey, and I'm excited to dive into the stories that have influenced countless films, television programs, and radio productions since their inception. Now, let's start discussing the history behind this character and its creator. Our tale begins on May 22nd, 1859, in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. That's when Arthur Conan Doyle was born. This is the man who would go on to write the Sherlock Holmes books, but his upbringing was quite different from the upscale London setting that his books took place in. Doyle ended up living in Scotland before his family ultimately scattered around the city when he was only five. His father suffered from severe alcoholism, and as such, it was decided that the best case scenario was for each of the children to go live in other settings. As such then, young Arthur was sent to live with the aunt of a family friend and started his schooling around that time. Just under a decade later, his family would reunite, and then some wealthy uncles decided to send him to school in England. As he started being educated in England, he didn't necessarily dislike his education, but there were certain aspects that he disagreed with, especially related to the strict and rigid regulations involved in his Jesuit schooling. As such, he started to move away from his Catholic upbringing. He certainly remained spiritual, and that was something that would end up defining much of his later life, but didn't necessarily stick to the strict religious obligations of Catholicism, something that would be quite present in some of his later books with the Sherlock Holmes character. Eventually, Arthur decided to return to Scotland, and once there, he studied medicine and botany while writing short stories, a bit of a renaissance man. Around this time as well, he served as a doctor on a whaler ship that was exploring Greenland, before returning back to Scotland and officially graduating with his degree. He then headed aboard another ship, and served as a surgeon on a voyage to West Africa. He then returned back to England, and started a practice with a friend, but ultimately this medical practice ended up failing, and Doyle ended up deciding to go independent. He was even more successful in that situation, and around this time as well, he started writing while he was waiting for patients to show up. Unfortunately for him, those patients were few and far between, and this led him to have significantly more time to practice and hone his writing. He was also, interestingly enough, very pro-vaccination. Vaccines were relatively new around this time period, but Doyle was exceptionally pro-vaccination, and even 
wrote many pieces of literature expressing his concerns for the anti-vaxxers that were present and trying to convince the public that mandatory vaccinations were necessary for the greater good. How far beyond his time the man was. With all of his medical practice failures, though, he decided to start studying another branch of medicine, ophthalmology, that is, the study of the eyes. He headed to Vienna, Austria for six months, and although he was able to spend some time with his wife Louisa while he was there, he decided to focus on writing more as well, picking up that practice while he was studying his ophthalmology. He ended up traveling around Milan before finally returning back to London, and he failed once again as an eye doctor. He was concerned at this point. He was struggling to make a living for him and his wife, and he decided that if he couldn't make enough money as a doctor, perhaps writing would end up serving him well. He ended up writing a new book in 1886. It was to be a piece of detective fiction, something that Edgar Allan Poe had started with his detective C. Auguste Dupin decades earlier. Doyle's new character, though, would be based on somebody entirely different. It would be based on a man named Joseph Bell. Bell was a surgeon that Doyle had served under at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, and Bell was famous among some of his colleagues for being able to draw significant conclusions about very small details. That being said, Bell would years later refer to Doyle as the real inspiration for Sherlock Holmes, stating that Doyle was far too modest and that it was in fact the author himself who was able to make those very strong conclusions. Finally, at the age of 27, Doyle ended up writing a book called A Study in Scarlet. He ended up finishing it in under three weeks. The original title was A Tangled Skein, and it would be rejected again and again and again as Doyle tried to get numerous publishers to pick up his book. Finally, though, he submitted it to a popular paperback magazine in England. It was called Beaton's Christmas Annual. Although Doyle wanted a royalty for the book, he instead got £25 for the rights to the story. This would be worth about £3.4,000 today. A year later, it would be published as a book and would include illustrations by Doyle's father. The Study in Scarlet story, both in the magazine and the book itself, ended up achieving a moderate degree of popularity. The readers who did end up enjoying and reading the story demanded more on Sherlock Holmes, and although the character wasn't terribly widespread, this was by far the greatest amount of success that Doyle had experienced in any sort of career. As such, he started to consider more possibilities for the Sherlock Holmes character. There's important pieces to note about A Study in Scarlet, though, especially about how the story contains stereotypes of Mormons. Although Doyle never publicly said anything about this, there were reports that he'd actually made significant apologies years later about his writing in the book, especially to a descendant of Mormon leader Brigham Young, who was featured in the book. There were some adaptations of this book as well, especially considering that it was the first ever story to feature Sherlock Holmes. In 1914, two different silent films were made, one British and one American. Both of those are now lost, though. In 1933, a film under this title was created with Reginald Owen playing Sherlock Holmes. Owen would later become most famous for his portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge in the 1950s adaptation of A Christmas Carol. However, this film really only featured A Study in Scarlet in name only. The story was almost entirely original. Many radio versions have been made over the years of this story, and the television adaptations have been significant as well. 
Most significant ones have included one starring Ronald Howard, which was featured as a four-episode arc from 1954 to 1955, a Peter Cushing version in 1968 called Sherlock Holmes, a Soviet TV film in 1979, an animated TV film starring Florence of Arabia actor Peter O'Toole in 1983, and, for modern audiences, a study in Pink, the first ever episode in the TV series Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch in 2010, and The Deductionist, an episode of the television show Elementary. Finally, with all of these adaptations, it's clear that this story, and most importantly, the character that introduced Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, became ingrained in popular culture. And in 1890, Sherlock Holmes would return in the book The Sign of the Four. We'll save that discussion, though, of Sherlock Holmes's second written adventure for next week's episode. For now, it's time for us to head into the story within A Study in Scarlet. A Study in Scarlet is split into two main parts. The first part is the reminiscence of John Watson. It begins with Watson telling the story from his first-person point of view, as he discusses first moving in with Sherlock Holmes after he greatly needed an apartment for returning to England after being a medical doctor for the army in Afghanistan. Watson meets Sherlock Holmes, and Holmes can immediately tell that Watson served in Afghanistan without being This is the first sign that Sherlock Holmes is rather unique. The second sign being that Holmes seems to have made a significant discovery in the chemistry laboratory in which he works. Finally, after Watson and Holmes move in together, Watson notices some very strange things about Holmes's work habits. Holmes tends to stay at home, and individuals call on him. Some of the individuals that call on Holmes seem to be from Scotland Yard, the British detective. One day, Holmes ends up receiving a communication from Gregson, one of the two main detectives from Scotland Yard. Apparently, Gregson and Lestrade, the other main detective from Scotland Yard, are on a case in a place called Brixton Road, and they're a little bit lost and need the help of Sherlock Holmes. Watson, still quite curious at what Holmes does, is invited along by Holmes for the investigation. The pair arrive at Brixton Road, and once there, they learn that an individual has been murdered. According to identification on him, the man was named Enoch Drebber. The case is curious, though. There's no marks on the body, but there's blood right near the body. Furthermore, the word Rosh, the German word for revenge, is written on the wall in blood. The wedding ring of a woman is found right near the body. Outside the house, there's the marks of some sort of cab that's gone by, and based on the footprints that Holmes has been able to see on the muddy ground, he's been able to determine a description of the murderer. Based on his stride, he's been able to calculate the murderer's height. He's starting to get some information about what the murderer might look like, but he's not revealing everything to Watson at this point. Instead, Holmes starts up his own investigation. Even though the quite egotistical pair of investigators from Scotland Yard seem to think that they know all. Holmes goes and talks to a police officer who originally found the body in the abandoned house the night before. According to this police officer, 
there was a drunk man nearby around the time, and the police officer ended up letting the drunk man go instead of taking him in because he had just found the body. At this point, Sherlock Holmes asks for a description about the drunk man and tells the very surprised police officer that that man was in fact the killer pretending to be drunk. At a bit of a dead end at finding this murderer, Sherlock Holmes puts an advertisement in the newspaper. It's an advertisement for the wedding ring that was found at the murder site. From this advertisement, an old woman arrives and attempts to claim the ring. It's actually a fake version of the ring, the real version is being held as evidence, but the old woman doesn't seem to know that. The ring is handed over and then Holmes goes and follows the old woman to see if she's going to give the wedding ring back to the murderer. However, his pursuit is in vain for the old woman ends up dashing away and Holmes realizes that that may not have actually been an old woman, but somebody in disguise, somebody that's working with the murderer. Once again, a bit of a dead end, and Holmes is perhaps getting a little bit frustrated, but trying not to show it to Watson. Gregson arrives at Sherlock Holmes' apartment the following day and states that he's arrested a suspect. The suspect was the son of the woman that owned the apartments where the murdered man was staying. Apparently, there was some issues between the son and Drebber, and as such, the man's been arrested. However, Lestrade arrives not long after. Lestrade was following up on an entirely different lead, that of Drebber's secretary, a man named Stangerson. He went to meet with Stangerson only to find that Stangerson had been killed, stabbed in the side. He picked up some items from the bedside table, and one of those items was a pillbox containing pills. Holmes has a theory. He feeds one of the pills to a dog that is on the verge of death. The dog stays alive. Then he feeds the other pill to the dog, and the dog immediately dies. With some sort of suspicion confirmed, Sherlock Holmes then goes and calls some individuals, some young boys in the area, that he refers to as the Baker Street Irregulars. There's boys that live on the streets that are able to get around and discover information that a police officer might not be able to. The Baker Street Irregulars end up finding some kind of cab driver who is called up to Sherlock Holmes' apartment. At this point, Sherlock Holmes announces that this man is the murderer, and after a brief scuffle, Sherlock Holmes manages to capture him and announces that this man is Jefferson Hope, the man who murdered both Drebber and Stangerson. At this point, the story changes entirely, and we enter part two, which is called The Country of the Saints. This part's entirely different. It's not initially told from Watson's point of view. Instead, we head to the United States of America, and we learn a man named John Ferrier was the adopted father of a girl named Lucy after everybody else in their expedition west ended up dying. They end up being found on the verge of death by a group of Mormons headed to Utah. And as they end up growing up in Utah after being taken in and being forced into their religion, John Ferrier ends up becoming quite rich, and his daughter ends up becoming the beauty of the town. Brigham Young, the leader of the Mormons, though, states that Lucy must marry a Mormon husband. Lucy is in love with a different man, that man being Jefferson Hope. However, according to Young, Lucy must choose between Drebber and Stangerson. Although Ferrier and Lucy attempt to escape with the help of Jefferson Hope, when Jefferson goes out hunting to get some food to bring back to them as they're making their journey over to Nevada, Ferrier is killed by the Mormons who found him. Lucy is taken back and forced to marry Drebber before she dies of a broken heart days later. All these years since then, Hope has been following Drebber and Stangerson, plotting his revenge, and has finally caught up with them in London, England. Once there, 
According to the testimony that he gave Dr. Watson, as we shift back to Watson's narrative, he ended up becoming a cab driver to follow the pair, and once they were finally separated after weeks, he ended up approaching them, revealed himself, and offered them a choice between two pills, one containing poison and one not. The man would choose, and Hope would take the other pill. Ultimately, as it turns out, Drebber lost that game, while Stangerson refused to play the game and attempted to kill Hope, only for Hope to kill him instead. Finally, we learn that Hope is about to die, it seems. He's got a significant aneurysm, and he ends up dying just a few days after being captured. Nonetheless, the case has been solved, even after Hope refuses to give up the name of his accomplice that played the old woman. And even after Holmes' significant efforts to find and apprehend Hope, Gregson and Lestrade take all the credit. Holmes seems relatively fine with it. He's used to this at this point as he's helped out Scotland Yard in many other cases. But Watson is infuriated and decides to write down the entire story of the study in Scarlet and publishes it for his own to give Holmes all the credit he deserves. Now let's talk a little bit about my opinions of this book. It's entertaining for sure, and certainly the murder itself is quite ingenious. However, I don't love how split the book is. We get through the first part all about Holmes and Watson, and I want to hear more about the two of them. The second part's so different, and it's really not for me. And as such, I think that Conan Doyle is still trying to figure out his writing style at this point, and as such, that makes this story not as good as it necessarily could have been. The character of Sherlock Holmes especially is not entirely fleshed out. Certainly we see some of his iconic features, such as his love of classical music and chemistry playing the violin, but we haven't seen the entirety of Holmes' character, and it's clear that he is certainly in development at this. As far as the continuity goes, the references to previous detective novels were quite fun for me. There's a reference to Dupin, the detective that was created by Edgar Allan Poe, as well as another detective from the world of literature, a man named Lecoq, a French version, and Holmes is quite offended at being compared to both of those. We get a little bit of an insight into the ego of Sherlock Holmes that we'll see in some later books there. We're also introduced to many of the significant characters in the Sherlock Holmes world. Of course, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson we also meet Lestrade, who we'll see many times in the future, and there's some references to the landlady of the apartment in 221B Baker Street, where Holmes and Watson have taken up residence, but she's not yet named as Mrs. Hudson. We'll meet her later in some of our future books. Other than that, not a ton of continuity to talk of, since this is the first ever story in the Sherlock Holmes, but there will be plenty more when we enter into the next book in our series. The next book is The Sign of the Four, and it will feature significant personal events in the lives of Dr. Watson, as well as a chance for Sherlock Holmes to solve an equally as fascinating mystery. Next week, then, we'll head into The Sign of the Four. Until then, though, my name is Ryan. Thanks for listening, and have a fantastic week.